Welcome back to episode 43 um, now of the Locker Room Podcast. My name is Ross Bennett. I'm the host for today, and I'm very delighted to uh, give a warm welcome to my uh, probably my new line manager, which we'll get into now officially, although she's been acting that for a long time anyway. So massive credit to where credit's due. I've got Manisha Taylor here today, who's just recently been appointed or promoted to the assistant head of coaching at Queen's Park Rangers um, Football Club Academy. So welcome, Manisha. Thanks for coming on today. No, thanks a lot. Uh, looking forward to speaking with you. Yeah, I know the wisdom and stuff you've got inside your head and especially working close. We've had Chris on the podcast before, so I'm sure today's going to be a, a, a very good chat that listeners are going to get loads out. Um, we termed this maximising development in youth football, so I know that's a passion of yours um, and obviously comes under your remit today. So I hope the listeners are going to get a lot around that and, and, and you're just excited as I am. Just before I move on, I must uh, give a massive credit to our sponsors who have come back on board with us, um, Ripped. Uh, is a software, so RYPT is a software platform built for performance coaches and organizations with easy to use programming tools and training load, well-being and nutrition monitoring via the RIPT app. All your coaching tools are in one place, streamlining your coaching, making it more accessible for your clients and athletes and providing you with the insights you need to optimize performance. And to find out more, please head over to www.ripped.app, that's R-Y-P-T, all capital letters, and you can use the, um, the code Locker Room to get two months free trial over there. And last episode, I said that I did with Mark was um, we're about to announce the collaboration with QPR Academy. Again, that's in the imminent future, so we're, we're lucky to be bringing Ripped in on board with our full-time players here at QPR. Um, perfect. Okay, back to the... Um, Back to the episode. Manisha, um, just a quick one then. So people, that a lot of our listeners come from the Gaelic football world, but we do have some football and soccer and stuff. So some of them might not know who you are. Um, could you just talk a little bit of a journey, how you've got into your current role today and into football, but also other things you've done as well and just give, give the listeners a bit of a background. That's okay. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I come from the educational sector, um, primary school trained. I, well, I fell in love with football uh, when I was a young young child. Um, see, I grew up in a time where there were very few opportunities for women and girls. The, the, the pathway that exists now certainly didn't look like what it does. Um, you know, I, I think it's great in the way that the women's uh, game has evolved. Um, uh, like with the professionalism, the fact that, you know, you have women now who get paid to play. Uh, there's also a pathway for young girls, whereas that didn't exist when I was growing up. So, you know, as a nine-year-old, although I went on trial, um, to, to Barnet, which was our local girl center of excellence at the time. Um, I got in, but, you know, for, for my mum at the time, it was very much around what would, well, first, first foremost, um, she wouldn't be able to get me to training. So, you know, that, that was a barrier in, in itself, but purely because there was myself and also my twin brother. So he had other sporting commitments. I mean, we both enjoyed football, but he was really good at cricket and squash. So, you know, she'd have to take, we'd have, he'd have to get there um so there was no one no one else to take me and and the other thing really was around what would the community say so this was so i was born in 1980 so we talk about you know over time things have moved on but as as a youngster um i didn't see any people who looked like me playing football uh, and for my mum that was that was quite a big thing at the time so i knew early on i was never going to be a player simply because of uh I guess a lack of visibility and role modeling um, on, on, on our part as a community, but uh, also um, a real 
lack of pathway, uh, particularly for me as a young girl. And I, I fell in love with child development um, at school. But I was also good at it. I remember there was an activity where, um, I don't know, some people might have done this as well, where you have to look after an egg and the egg is innocent, it's a child, it's like a young baby. Um, and if, if the egg cracked, you, 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 you've had it because you know, you've obviously not, not done a great job. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously I've done well with that, I took care of the egg um, and also got, got a good grade in, in child development. Uh, and then that inspired my love for teaching. So I thought, oh, potentially I could, I could become a teacher and a primary school teacher, which is what I went on to do. So I did a BA in education. Um, but I specialized in early childhood education. And I think that that in essence then lended itself to, to kind of where I moved on to, because although I stayed in, in education for 10 years, um, my, I evolved quite quickly in terms of from going in as a newly qualified teacher. And in primary schools, you teach everything from geography, history to science. And I did a little bit of PE, not, not very much if I'm honest. Um, you know, you've got 11 subjects that you're teaching, you know, um, throughout because you're teaching the whole national curriculum. And um, in, my law, in my kind of, before I took the career change in 2011, I was a deputy head. So I got on to do my trainee headship. And at the time, it very much what was in my head was that I wanted sport to be a big part of my school. So I didn't envisage being in football. What I thought was that I would take football because I love football. Um, into, into my own school. So I passed my qualification for headship, um, but during, the, during all of that time, uh, I also became a young carer when I was 18 for my twin brother along with my family. So that, that completely changed the way, not only um, my outlook on life, but I think it certainly had an influence on the teacher and the person that I became because of my brother's condition and the very fact that you know, from depression, it went to schizophrenia. Uh, it, it progressively got got a lot worse to the point where he needs um, he needed absolute one to one care, um, and he doesn't communicate verbally as we do, and he hasn't done so probably for the best part of twenty years now. So that certainly teaches you other other skills. You know, uh, especially when you're uh, we talk about communication. Communication isn't always verbal, but I'll kind of come on to that. When we talk about, um, you know, we really delve into the to the subject of coaching and uh, and transferable skill set. Um, but during that time, in essence, it I loved football, but didn't have any qualifications in, in to coach. I just asked the head teachers in the various schools I worked in that look, we, you know, the, the kids want to play. We don't currently have a provision because, particularly in the time when when I became a teacher in the early two thousand, there was a real lack of provision for physical activity um, and, and in various sports. So the head teacher said, yeah, why not? You know, if you think you can get some young people together, go ahead and do it. And it was one of the schools that I worked in neighbored Wembley Stadium. And it was in, it, well, it was in Wembley. And we worked very closely with Rachel Yankee and her football program. And it started off with using, um, so it was Arsenal's double club. So using um, football as a tool to really help elevate uh, numeracy and literacy skills with young people and Rachel knew that I was coaching the the school teams so she said oh you do know that you can go and get a level one and pretty much got my level one um it was 2009 2010 was signposted straight away to get onto my level two 
and through Alex Welsh uh, with London FA was put on the female coach development program, which was great because it was for people who, like me, who lacked confidence because I wasn't coaching all the time. You know, I wasn't in that in that environment. Um, I was doing a bit of schools coaching, grassroots coaching on the Saturday as part of Rachel Yankee's um, grassroots club, which was great for me because you're there with 30 odd, seven, eight, nine year olds with just on the grass, you know, scooping up the poo in the morning, putting up the nets and all, you know, it was, it was great. I think that was fantastic grounding and really good experience. And the career change really was coincidence because my home circumstance in some respect forced it to happen. And I haven't looked back since because what I was able to do was reconnect with the people I had connected with in my time in education, but football people, because I was still involved, but it was mainly through education. So um, Rachel Yankee gave me some work with her football program and I was actually doing PPA cover going into schools. I was volunteering with Middlesex and those then uh, transpired into roles. So I was then, as well as doing grassroots coaching, I was getting paid work, you know, on the side, just doing one-to-one tuition, uh, supply teaching, still earn some money, still delivering the quality work with the FA and show races on the red card. And um, it was in 2014 when I met Chris Ramsey. Uh, we were both on a panel together, well, a- a- along with Chris Powell talking about inclusion and diversity, but I know he wasn't at QPR at the time. Uh, he was still at Tottenham. And one of the key things he said to me was, don't rush. You need to hone in on your trade and take your time to learn. But in any case, the prerequisite to, to be a part-time coach or any coach in the in the professional game would be a UA for B. So I went on to get my B license in 2015 and coincidentally reconnected with Chris again um, at Troy Townsend's Kick It Out event in April. And he said to me, what are you up to now? What are you doing? And I said, look, got my B license, but um, Middlesex are folding. So I was in, I was centre manager in my last season there. And it was in the time where there was a restructure in the female game. So centre of excellences were no longer going to exist because they were now going to be in the guise of a regional talent club. And um, we didn't get a, a license to become an RTC. So I was actively looking for RTC jobs. And uh, Chris said, look, you can come in and volunteer, but I've got, um, you know, I haven't got any jobs, but you can come in and have a look and volunteer. So I thought, okay, wow, you know, I never ordinarily get an opportunity like that. And I suppose the rest, the rest is history because I um, started to volunteer. You know, I'm not sure if you remember, Ross, but I'd, I'd be here quite early because I'd watch, you know, Furs with the 18s. Um, and I remember Murray was there at the time. I'd then stay back to, to watch the SNC, you know, uh, then go over to the Dome in the evening to look at the schoolboys. Um, I'd do some sessions in the development center because what I needed, what I understood was you're coming from a completely different sector in an environment and the culture is very different to primary education and, and the professional game. Uh, the obvious being the fact that I, although I was in a senior role in education, uh, I was managing women and there were very few male primary school teachers and you're coming into this whole new world, I guess. And I felt that I, you know, you're almost starting from scratch again um, because you have to learn, you know, learn the philosophy, learn, learn the way of uh, a professional football club and coming in to volunteer and speaking to, to people like yourselves and other heads of department uh, allowed me to do that. And um, 
I remember one of the, so I knew Andy Impey before. Uh, I met him through an event at Kick It Out um, many, many years before I, I, I joined QPR. And he always said to me, um, if ever you can connect with Chris, uh, come in, he's really open and, and what a great place it, it would be, you know, to, to be in. And, and I make him right because, you know, uh, since I arrived, it's been really warm and welcoming. Um, I think I've never felt out of place, you know, yeah, there's been challenges along the way, but I think that's, that, that's normal. Um, and, and I feel that the element of trust from Chris, from Alex has allowed for um, me to be able to, to show what else I could offer. And I guess that's what then lended itself to, to me then, I suppose, getting a job in the, with the under nines and essentially uh, in the beginning and then through ECAS being able to be employed on a full-time basis uh, with the funding that was available to then go into the role of lead foundation phase and, and being in the environment full-time men again it provides a platform and opportunity for you to not only continue learning but talk about other skills that show actually um there is a place for um diversity in skill set so when we talk about diversity it's not just about you know race and skin color and yes of course you know that that is what makes us um different but we are also different in what we can bring um and how we can help ultimately help help the players help the program and uh, yeah recently like you just said there there was a role that opened up for assistant head of coaching and um i, I applied and unfortunately was lucky enough to, to to get the role and hopefully that can then inspire other women uh, other other people who don't come from the professional game as a player um and and people from diverse communities to think that you know these things are actually possible for sure. Thank you very much, Manisha. Very detailed um, account of where you've come from, both professionally and, and personally, and that's definitely added to your skill set today. Talk a little bit more about the culture aspect then. Like as a South Asian woman, when you were growing up, football wasn't deemed as something that was a, a professional career or something that was respected, maybe amongst the community. How, how have you how have you managed to navigate that and, and maybe put, change the way that it's looked at for you to come in full time and progress within this game? So ultimately, uh, it, the, the network of support is really important. So when you're a young person and you, you're, you're naive, isn't it, as a, as a 9, 10, you know, 11 year old or a teenager, you're, so, you're naive and you just want to be able to enjoy football. And, and sometimes, unless these things are presented to you, you, you don't actively go out to notice difference. You don't, you know, and, and I realized early on that perhaps I am different, which is why there is a lack of opportunity. And when I was in a position to, to try and affect change, and along with many other people who are doing work in this space, it, it got me to reflect and think that Actually, although I grew up in an area, so I, I live in North London, North London's really, you know, uh, it, it's diverse, very multicultural, uh, which is great. But having said that, football itself still didn't uh, allow for access to equal opportunities for all, although it said, oh, we do. And one of the key things was around a network of support um, and access. So I was able to go on trial, but there was no one to get me to training. Yeah. And 
that's going to be the same for many other people who come from some of these, you know, come from communities where um, there could be a, a real big talent pool. But unless you can actually get to the centers, you know, whether it's academies, you know, boys academies or girls academies or, or girl, girls RTCs, um, I think we're going to lose a whole load of talent. So what, as I, you know, grew older and, and became more aware of some of these issues that exist and also I felt you know you almost have to be in a position to to influence to create change so once I kind of was in in that type of arena what I was then able to do was um, volunteer my time and link up with organizations so one being for example the FA who um, I've, I've sat on the the Asian women in football steering group for a number of years and it's you know it's and it's grown it's a makeup of women uh, South Asian women who are in different aspects of the game. But what's good about it is it's about uh, the sharing of ideas and the sharing of expertise, because uh, some of the conversations that kept coming up was around, well, there's a real lack of South Asian footballers. And what one of the things, you know, and I, look, I think that we are moving forward and there are many people now doing great things. So you've got Riz Rahman at the PFA, for instance, um, and some of our boys, uh, like Dylan, uh, De Silva, Aaron Drew, you've got a number of boys, um, oh, Amrit, Amrit as well, they're mentors for the young South Asian players, which is great. So we've got a number of, I mean, we've got about seven or eight across the whole academy at our place who come from the South Asian community. It, that's just a one club. I mean, that's not because we forced it. That's about what's our catchment? Yeah. Are we in a demographic that is diverse and multicultural and then it's do are we open to recruitment um, and is there a pathway and yes well, we can we can clearly see that there's transparency there and I think you know talk about the boys game or the, or the, or the female game um, equally we need to look at look at that you know uh, too because some of the things around the female game at the moment is that when you look at where uh, the, the girls academies are located they're located in leafy areas that are not accessible to, to people from multicultural communities mm. and it's you know there'll be uh, many people who may not be able to access these therefore we're losing a pool of talent so I think when you're in a position to be able to influence change and use your voice for me you know it was it was a given it was okay well I have to otherwise why are you in the position that you're in you know mm. you're in it for yourself of course because I want to grow I want to develop and you know, it's been no secret. I've always said that football keeps me connected to my to my brother. Um, but I also feel there's a purpose as to why I did make this big leap because I was in a very good salary and took a significant pay cut. Uh, so that there's got to be an intrinsic motivation on my part, which is my family uh, circumstance. Uh, and for that reason, I feel it's important that, you know, you do the advocacy work. So whether it's with the FA, uh, we show races in the red card and kick it out, um, at, you know, and, and be a speaker or, or, or be on panel. So with Sporting Equals recently, I became vice chair of uh, coaching. Uh, and it's not just football, it's across the board. But again, what's great is, is you're able to network and you're able to use your voice uh, and, and, and share good practice. So obviously our club being one of them, but also share good practice with what some other people are equally doing uh, in, in terms of this subject. 
for sure. Thank you very much, Manisha. And just briefly talk a little bit about your um, the ECAS scheme, which you said, which allowed some funding for you to come and work full-time, essentially, at the club. Um, and we were speaking yesterday about the schemes are great, but obviously then there has to be some sort of um, contingency and continuity of work after, and that's maybe where it lacks a little bit. Discuss that a little bit, and then obviously some experiences that have not happened for other people, opportunity coming out the other end. So the... the the greatest thing that ECAS did was uh, allow opportunity. So we know currently the reason we need schemes is because there is a lack of opportunity. If everybody was treated on a fair and, and level playing field, we don't need best reason schemes, you know? Um, so what ECAS did was allow for somebody like myself um, and, and also women. So it was people from um, different backgrounds and women uh, and the good thing was the Premier League and the FA recognising that we clearly need to redress the balance because there's an imbalance uh, of, of people who work within the professional game. And it allowed for me to become full time because as a club, we wouldn't have, like, you know, having spoken to Chris, they wouldn't have been able to get me in full time at that stage because we just didn't have the money and, and to, to do so. And the jobs didn't exist anyway, you know, the jobs were already taken. So when I applied, well, in fact, Chris and Alex applied on my behalf. Um, I applied before I was at QPR and I didn't get on. Um, I got to interview, but the, the, the advice given was you needed more formal club experience. And I took that on board and you can only get experience based around, um, you know, the access and the connections that you have. So a lot of the experience was around uh, being in grassroots clubs. And lo and behold, when I then started to work here, I did forget about ECAS until Chris and Alex said, oh, well, it's open to CAT 2 clubs now. And uh, we, if you get on it, we can get some funding to, to bring you in as lead foundation base. And um, when I went to interview, it was interesting because it was the same people there. And it was very much about being able to, to show how the program can help you um, and what you know, so personally and professionally. But one of the, the, the biggest learnings I got from the program um, was that I was already at a club. So I didn't need to be placed because in essence, what the placement does is it places you in a club. And if you're a female, already you're getting judged just on the back of that because you are getting placed in a full-time coaching role. You know, it, it's... We see more women in, in administrative jobs now at clubs. That's great. We do not see many women on the grass. Um, so for me, I was already in an environment that I was familiar with. Uh, I, you know, it was a safe environment. I, I knew the philosophy. So coming into the role as lead foundation phase was also almost an easier transition. And, and I, I feel that that's resulted, uh, as well as the support from our senior managers, that's resulted in me being able to sustain my job through the ECAS program. Because when I look at other women who um, started on a similar journey, but were not in a club already, had to be placed in the club are no longer at those clubs. Yeah. And I question why, and I'm not saying that, you know, um, it's solely to do with the program. What I'm, what I'm just highlighting is the fact that there are many great things in the program, you know, the networking, the fact that you're able to, to, to meet people at different clubs, which ordinarily 
you, you know, you wouldn't have the depth of conversations that I have done when you're away for three days, uh, which and, and all of that's been great. And, you know, some of the speakers, like for me, particularly um, Mitch, you know, around the, 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 the physiology and, and the, the, um, the, the mechanics and, and the sports science part of it, that that for me has been been that was unbelievable, particularly with the way that uh, he presented. Um, so th there was some, you know, th there was a lot of learning, but I do, one of the things I do reflect and question is how can we ensure that people sustain their jobs when you, um, uh, when they're on the program? And what can we do better to, to ensure that that happens before people are placed? Because it was easier for me because I was already familiar with the environment. So there's got to be some level of accountability so that you don't just then have a course for the sake of a course or a program for the sake of a program. Otherwise, what's the point in the investment? You know, we, you want it to create opportunity, but also to sustain people in jobs. That's the whole point so that they become upskilled. You know, after four or five years, uh, it's a case where, OK, you know, that they could potentially be in a position to be able to look for other jobs. What you don't want is a case where people fall out. And they're now no longer on the course, um, and and you know, and, and no longer maybe even in the game. Sure, yeah. There's, there's an issue there on both ends, isn't it? Part of the program and the openness of the, of the club um, and willingness to extend that further and, and value the work that's gone on during the program. But luckily, you 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 personally you was in in the environment. You was working anyway as a coach, and and that's stood you in, um, put you in good stead. Just bridging the gap now before we move on to more of the coaching stuff, Manisha, what transferable skills did you have personally? You spoke a lot about communication, which is a big one we'll go into in a bit more, but what about like the stuff directly from education and, and talking about development? What, what did that give you coming into a coaching in a football environment? And obviously the cultures are completely different, but the, the outcomes of learning, there's definitely similarities there and consistency. So what did you learn from your early years as a, as a teacher and education and a head assistant head and stuff? And how did you bring that into your, your coaching? So I think what you said was key there around learning and development. And I think that, that the biggest grounded I had was the fact that my degree was in, in education and my specialism was in early childhood development. So there was, a, I felt personally that I had um, a level of understanding around pedagogy and, and child development, and that's transferable. So, you know, that, that phrase of ages and stages, well, that, if you can understand that, then that ultimately links to um, uh, anything you do when you're working with young people. So for example, you know, the simple, simple thing of knowing that when children are younger, they're more egocentric, um, you know, they're, 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 there's a lot of enthusiasm, um, that their body's still developing, they're still growing. Therefore, how you work and communicate with them will be different to, to, to young people who maybe um, are now not in the foundation age groups, but, you know, 11 and 12. And that in, in itself is going to lend itself to um, now greater connections, more sharing of the ball, if we're talking about, you know, the, the uh, uh, football. But I feel that um, understanding how children learn um, was was one of the key things for me. And then I think, you know, when we talk about like the soft skills, so communication, having empathy, um, understanding difference, and, and not just, you know, we talk about difference, but differences in all aspects. So um, 
you know, the fact that children learn in different ways. So being able to differentiate, being able to scaffold. Um, people who are familiar with primary schools will know that because there are so many subjects and departments, I, I remember, so um, I, I was head of, at some one stage, I was head of uh, assessment. And a lot of that involved um, really delving into different types of assessment processes. And what I was able to do was then when I, see when I came into this environment here, although I felt I was experimenting with certain aspects uh, and tools when I was in grassroots coaching, was around how do we really look at identifying what the kids can do and how can we then help scaffold and then challenge um, but also allow them to, to experiment, explore and, and cement. And a lot of that, the baseline of learning came from when I was head of assessment or when I was in schools where we're talking about assessment for learning, which is around scaffolding, uh, really. You know, it's how do you break information down to help children learn, but it's also continuous assessment. So, for example, if you have journals, um, uh, through questioning, we can probe uh, the, the kids. So, you know, if a child says, I was really good at dribbling, we, we can then, you know, we can, it's, we can question and engage a child in conversation around, well, what did that look like? You know, what, what um, the, the mechanics and the, you know, what side did you use? Did you use both feet? And, and that's, did you drop your shoulder? What was the disguise like? And that type of thing. To when you're doing like school reports at the end of a term or end of a year, and that was no different. So when you're coming into this type of environment where you are required to, to report on players. So a lot of that put me in good stead. What I needed to learn was a club philosophy of whatever the club, you know, in, in this case, it was Christian QPR, what, what was required of you as a coach. But I, it, had I not had that so planning, uh, organization, um, you know, understanding of child, child development and learning um, assessment, had I not had that, I don't think I would have been able to evolve so quickly in the position that I that I'm now in, that makes sense? Yeah, 100% makes sense. And we'll touch on that in, in your opinion on a coach a little bit later on. But maybe there's some key elements in there that some coaches don't have that may may um, they may be stronger at something else, the football side, the philosophy side, but that underpinning educational aspect is, is essential in development, which we'll, we'll, touch, we'll touch upon. Just delving now into the really youth development content and your role per se, but also your passion around making these players better through the, through the stages. Talk us a bit about what you think, and obviously it's going to be guided by the philosophy and, and your mentor, mentorship under Chris, what you think a good development program is, um, and feel free to take us through different ages. And, and you know, we have the pyramid here. That's, that's, that's quite a paramount and different stages of learning and chronological ages and, and how that changes. So I think um, fundamentally, whether you're, you know, look, this is across the board, whether it's in, in, in subjects or whether it's, you know, like, like in football, that the philosophy should be determined by um, the, the player and the players that you have now. Your framework is going to be your style of play, how you want to be able to play. But, you know, um, the players that you have should determine uh, what you coach and how you coach. So I think a philosophy that focuses or development program that does that focuses on individual player development. Um, you know, we talk about being able to identify strengths um, and, you know, have our lens focused on what they can do as opposed to what they can't do. 
and and really only work on what they can't do if it detrimental you know if it drastically affects um or hinders their strength but with the younger ones you know when you're talking about the young players it, it's, it should be very generic you know that like, like i said earlier that but we're talking about young children who are very egocentric they don't want to share and you know high energy high enthusiasm uh those um how you coach and that that philosophy should lend itself to knowing where where is the child uh, at, you know in in their learning and their development so for example like you know tag games and and uh, individual ball work so whether that is you know talk about ball mastery but you know basic ball skills so dribbling running with the ball and then you hone it in all the mechanical movements and those things can be done so you know to change the direction and you, you talk about like the axles d cells and the drop in the shoulder and the disguise you can really hope the foot patterns like mobility whether that's to do with your hips your ankle Invasion games are, you know, multi-directional, lots of you've got to scan and be aware without even having to, 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 to you know, to, to say to the player, right, today we are going to be learning scanning, awareness, uh, you know, at, and that type of thing, because they're going to be doing it anyway. Yeah. And sometimes I think people overcomplicate things with the, with the young players, you know, um, it's simplicity goes out the way, whereas the, the framework should be simple and it should be geared towards where is the player at at the moment? What do they need and how can we allow them to explore and experiment and then cement? Because sometimes what we do is move things on too quickly, I think, um, and it becomes about a coach ego as opposed to actually what does the child need? Um, repetition, I think, goes across the continuum because there's a case for, I believe, uh, isolated practice, uh, as well as a practice with a little bit of interference and distraction, because as much as you can learn from chaos and games, and I think that, you know, that's, it's a great way of um, really developing uh, thinking tactics. Uh, when we talk about tactics, you can do that through 1v1s, because there's a lot to be said, you know, Paul Holder talks about it, Paul McGuinness, um, Michael Carrick, you know, Graham Carrick, so they're all talking about um, that there's a lot more conversations now around when we're talking about tactics, well, what is that? Actually, that's about thinking. And we can help young players develop that through individual ball work. They're moving that onto 1v1 duels. Um, we're going to put them in a better position for when the pitches get bigger. They're, as they develop um in their mind they now don't mind sharing a little bit therefore we're now looking at lending the ball because that's also tying in with where they're at with regards to their stage of learning and i think the great thing about let's say our philosophy and, and certainly what i've learned from from chris and other you know like the senior coaches is that this is what our philosophy does. That's why we work on a, in a development pyramid and a continuum. We allow for repetition and isolated practices to, to help young people develop the, the, the mechanics um, before moving them on to, to interference. Because sometimes you might go, you know, that phrase, whole part, whole, you might start them off in a game, observe. You might then now have to, like Chris says to me, uses a phrase, take it back to the lab. Then you might, then you might go, well, actually, 
I think I think what we need to work on is 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 scanning and foot patterns and preparation for receiving the ball because if we can work on that and they're able to open out their hip then maybe that's going to lend itself to the to, to them being able to take a first touch so it's in their personal space and not so it bobbles um that you might then take that back to the lab you might do some isolated block work and then bring it back um so i think adaptability is also key because it's having a framework then looking at who are the players that you've got in your group what are their identified strengths how are you then scaffolding to to allow them to learn is it appropriate to the age and stage of learning and also bearing in mind that within the group of 10 12 18 that you have they're all going to be different in their learning is the practice for you or for them and at the end of it what's in it for all of them so you can have one practice as we know can have one practice that allows for all players to work on what it is that they need to work on and then you know as you go go up as we know that will become a little bit more bespoke but you think about like that our basic practice we've got defensive arena you can work on uh you can either have the emphasis as a defensive one and work on um checking your shoulders scanning uh, defensive foot patterns distances within a unit you know um blocking um tackling or it can be the attacking emphasis and for some it might be around uh, forward runs for others, it might be around uh, maintaining possession, com you know, combination, having a play in front of you. It, so you can then work, you know, the emphasis can change, but the practice itself doesn't. But it then caters for whatever the players need. Um, and then we can make that a little bit more role and job specific as they're, you know, as, as they get older. Really good detail there, Manisha. Thank you. Uh, a couple of things just to hone in on, because I think it's interesting you said about, I think sometimes we move practice on too quickly, because in, in the, and this from my experience as well, in your head, you're thinking, well, we need to move on now. The players are getting bored, but actually the players aren't getting bored. The coach is getting bored. So that's important to say, well, have the players mastered this practice or have they got their outcomes out that they you want from it? If they haven't, then you stick with it for the, the, the required time is that something you see quite often in in practice yeah and i think you said something key there which is have we got the outcomes that we want and actually i think um we and it's you know when we talk about reflection i think we are becoming as a fraternity a lot more reflective uh which is great but is it about the outcomes we want or is it about the outcomes that the players need to get because sometimes that can also differ because in our head we might think okay we 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 want them to be able to do this but is does that mean does that correlate with what the player actually needs because yeah. you know i think biases also set in sometimes with uh with with, with particular things so I've seen it many times, you know, and I'm not going to, I've been guilty of doing it early on, but it's, you have to, you have to reflect, you have to learn, you have to take on board information from, you know, um, people that good people you have around you who can help you with understanding, are they, I'm saying readiness. So I remember, so I did, I remember I did psychology A-level, but even in my, um, when I was doing my BA in education, we talked about like Piaget and, and there were, 
I'm a psychologist in terms of their theories and, and readiness was a big part of uh, development and learning that why are we moving it on if they haven't grasped the, the, the basic concept? So you think about, um, talk about like receiving the ball. If, oh, well, they can't really receive it properly. Oh, you know, it's, it's you, want it, you want it in your personal space as a dead touch, but it's, it's bobbling all over the place. And, but yet we haven't allowed them to, to develop ball feel. And, you know, the, a, a basic control, whether that's through, you know, core skills, whether that's through juggling, whatever it might be, but we haven't allowed, we haven't allowed for that to happen. What we've done is moved them on to, to B without really focusing on, on, on A. So it's, I think there's, it's having greater understanding. My recommendation would be, is having greater understanding of uh, the connections. We talk about connections between players. So, so in 1v1, you know, your connection between you and the defender or, you know, 2v2v1, 2v2, v etc. But there's also um, the connection over, in order for them to be able to receive, let's break that down. What do the core ingredients look like? Okay, what do they need to be able to do? They need to be able to open it. And then we've got our glue with the awareness, movement, time and execution, but Paul McGuinness equally has done a lot of work. So it's been really honed in and ingrained on my A license around, you know, deception, movement, technique, uh, scanning. Those things are really your, so we, we use, we say it's the glue. That's your core ingredients, isn't it? It's like, you can't just have a cake. You have to have things to put into the cake. This is no different. You know, that before we get them to, to receive on a half turn, have we worked on the mechanics, the ball feel, the touch, um, the, the scanning, the opening out of the hips, the, the arms, you know, what's your head doing? Have we worked on those things or are we just moving them on uh, very quickly? So like you said, I think, yeah, I've seen that. And I think a key thing would be to go back and think about what's your overall, or what, what is it that we want to achieve for the players how are we going to help them do that? That's your key ingredient. You know, all those things I spoke about in terms of scanning, um, you know, perception, you know, uh, perception, foot patterns and stuff. All of that comes into core ingredients. Then you take that back to the lab and go, what practices can we design to allow for that to happen? Then you go back into, right, we want to go into to receiving combination play or whatever it might be. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Manisha. And hopefully the, the more experienced and I guess the better the coach gets, what the coach would like out of the practice should lend to what the players need out of the practice. And that should should marry up. But you're right in times, it, it doesn't. Another point just before we move on was around isolated practice and, and what I would say close skill practice, which is a big topic always in the coaching and, and pedagogy, especially newer schools of thoughts and around development. But I think, as you said, even with the young like under nines practice and the foundation phase where you've got your tag games, where you're getting your awareness of scanning without explicitly breaking that down and coaching it, even though you might take that back to the lab at some point, but then you've also got your individual ball work, the combination of the two and how you marry one and scaffold one and talk about mechanics, talk about individual movement, break it down where the players can actually understand it. And then how that goes into a chaotic game with, with interference, distractions and the game itself that's the key isn't it to, to make sure that they learn that that broken down skill and it goes into the game you can't just put them into the game and say well you've got to check your shoulders and you've got a one bouncer pass to the right winger because you haven't worked on that so that's where I think that theory gets broken down I mean any anything to add on that yeah I'd say what you said was key because uh, that's where um, we're not all experts in 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 all these different fields and that's why i think working as a an mdt is really crucial because that's where you might go to 
uh, your sports science team um, and, and kind of and have a conversation around, okay, we want to work on certain movements. How can we do it so that they're football movements? Because I think there's also the element of where, where it becomes disjointed is that you have a sports science team doing a warm-up and then there's no link to actually uh, it going into the football part, whereas um, there should be synergy between that because they're all sh they should be football movements and not and not isolated movements. You know, we're just going to run with it, uh, or we're just going to do sprinting and, and so on. And, and I and I understand there's a there is a place for that. Uh, mm -hmm. I completely understand that. But I think generally, I'm saying that's where, like you said, uh, speaking with the experts in those particular areas and planning together will allow for that to happen because you are not going to be the expert in all of those areas yeah yeah agree and even just an understanding that if somebody's not doing what you think is at the right level or, or is underperforming or failing as, as we like to say in certain things you can't just keep putting them into that game scenario and expecting them to get better and better you have to as Chris said, take them to the lab and really break down what they what it is they need to improve on. Okay, moving on, Manisha, and probably um, a, a lesson for me, you can talk to me a little bit. What, in your eyes, um, within your remit and your phase, what makes a good coach? And it might change, as you said, at younger ages and as it gets a bit more specific and you're honing in on different skills. But what makes a good coach um, that you see on the grass and how they affect change with players? I think we can all say fundamentally it's you need to have subject knowledge, you need to have a baseline of subject knowledge, but you can have subject knowledge and not be able to connect with the players. And as we know, uh, Chris talks about connection as being the biggest part of any coach and being able to, to, to communicate and guess that, get the best out of them. You know, how many of us know what the kids like to do outside of football or what they've done, you know, um, but what, what their favourite films or, or foods are and that type of thing. So I think getting to know the players, uh, connecting with them, um, I think having energy and enthusiasm, the more young, the younger the players are, uh, you're almost, uh, you know, acting, aren't you? You know, there's got to be that bundle of energy um, because your enthusiasm, you'll impart that onto the kids and they've got so much energy and drive. It's, uh, I think, so that the younger they are, that's really important. Um, the, being somebody who's going to be empathetic um, and open, I think someone who's going to challenge their own biases, definitely, because like you said, you, you, you have different types of players, uh, doesn't matter what age and stage, you know, across the whole development continuum. And, and sometimes your own biases um, can affect how you coach and what you observe and see. So I think challenging your own biases, becoming more reflective, uh, being observant but really knowing what you're observing which goes back to, to subject knowledge being open to working um in, in partnership with other departments uh leaving your ego at the door uh and and really recognizing that we are here to develop players to be the best that they can be because we know the statistics are so low that the majority of those who come to us are not going to be professional footballers you know, what we want to be able to do is make sure that they have not only a great time, but they have a real learning experience that mm. makes them rounded. They come away as better footballers, but more importantly, as good people. Um, and they can come away with all these skills and it might be in other salary football, it might be in education or, 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 or something else, you know. Um, 
but that that I think is really important. And the only other thing I've had, but I've spoken a lot about it already, is around a real understanding of development and learning. Because you know, whether you are working with an under 23 or an under nine, they are still in development, you know? And I think that um, unless we really understand how children learn, it becomes very difficult to help them. Yeah, and a first team player. Everyone, everyone's learning everyone's learning yeah. and, try, and trying yeah. to improve i think it's important and especially into um senior into county and, and senior club from the gaelic perspective as well manisha thank you very much just bringing that on then to the training session the individual training session a lot of listeners will want to know you know what's your views on setting up the training session i know we spoke a lot about it laterally and, and inadvertently but and it will depend on what you're focusing on what the outcome is but what do you look at when you're designing training sessions for a session to have good outcome and get the learning outcomes that you want from it so i'll say look one of the biggest things i've learned from chris uh, over my time here and how how we plan is that it, every, people, people who know qpr know it's very it's the plans are done it's very rigid in that in that respect you know we we've got chris has already designed the practices but the key learnings i've taken from chris are this and and, and I, we've seen it work is that uh, simplicity it's not, don't keep changing the practices. Um, be, be confident in yourself and be patient to keep the practices the same. But the more you understand your, the principles uh, and, and you work to a style of play as opposed to a theme, today we're just going to work on playing out from the back and, and, and so on. Um, the more I think you'll see long-term benefits. So I'll give an example. If we're doing um, hit the blue, which is a, a pivot play practice, you can you can have like you can have the, the whole the emphasis is going to be around um, pivot play and midfield midfield uh, movement combination play and so on. But you can have a defending emphasis too, and still do hit the blue because you you can work on swarming, um, and and just keep working you know and breaking down different aspects of, of defending and do that over a number of weeks and do the attacking part over a number of weeks. But there's always a yin and a yang, as Chris says, isn't it? So if you're attacking, you still got to be able to, you're going to defend to yeah. regain possession. So I think simplicity, keeping, don't keep changing the practices because the more we do that, the players have to learn rules. And most of the time, it, the, the session becomes about learning the rules and they get very little contact and ball time. Um, be patient because development is a journey and be patient in the respect of you don't have to keep changing things. A lot of that's going to come from your enthusiasm. So as much as over uh, at our place, the, the sessions are prescribed, our personalities are different and our charisma uh, and how we execute and deliver the session is going to be different. And the more enthusiastic we are about it, that will rub off on the players and the players don't get bored, like the coaches get bored. Uh, and the only final thing I'd say on it is um, is around just, you know, be clear with your principles, you know. So it, there is a place for where people coach to themes, which is fine. But as we know, you know, on a, on a pitch, uh, they're, they're in one of, you know, they're either in, um, we talk about score, make or stop, or, you know, uh, talk about they're either of a scoring goals, assisting, maintaining, or, or you know, um, getting something out of it, or, or defensively, you know, they're either winning the ball back, making play predictable, 
um, support in the first event or, or in some type of team function. And we can't always just stick to, well, we're only going to look at build up play. We're only going to look at creating and combination play. Because what we've also got to consider is what we've spoken about, which is um, making sure all the players get what they need. Um, and the fact that through the game, it's so fluid, isn't it? You're in these things all the time. Yeah. So it's being clear on your principles and, and coach my, you know, we coach the principles, don't we? For sure. Just as you said that, I moved the laptop round because we got the in possession, out of possession checklist on, on, on the backdrop there. So, um, yeah, things that you were speaking about. I think that's important because, look, I've been in it firsthand where for a six week block, we've, we've coached the same stock practice. And obviously you've added phases and small sided games, large sided games. You've changed the, the things around the stock practice. But like the, it's about what you focus on in the practice. So you're saying they're playing out from the back. Well, you can play out from the back and hit the blue. You can set your two centre halves up and talk about serving into the blue. You can you can relate stuff into these stock practices that you you just need to think about the game and the LPs in a little bit more detail. Um, brilliant, thanks, Manisha. Just moving on a little bit. I know you spoke a lot about individual approach within the sessions and especially at the, the first part of it. Um, it's becoming a real hot topic at the minute, individualisation. But this has been around for years in terms of you know way back when I was at Chelsea years ago. I know Chris has been talking about it for years and even since it's become from QPR. You know. The individualization is key. What extra bits, apart from the individualization within the sessions, taking it back to the lab, you might get unit work. What else does that really mean to you, that individual approach mean to you about getting that player to the next stage or ultimately over the line? I think similar to what I've said earlier, which is, is under, there we talk about understanding what the player needs, but in order to understand the player, uh, what the player needs, we need to understand the subject. So, and that's why I, I talk about, you know, we talk about diverse skill set. That's why I think you do need different types of people because you're going to have people who are, are better equipped at that to, um, and, and other people who are better equipped at understanding learning and development. So you can marry that together. So it's having the subject knowledge to then understand what do, what do players need, then being able to identify what, what is their strength then you're, you need to allow time for this individual to develop. So patience uh, and understanding of that, you know, the age and stage, understanding that as they develop, there'll be various contributing factors such as growth, um, adolescence, and, and, and many other things, you know, their body changing, um, pitches getting bigger from when they're young to, to when they're older, all these different dynamics, friendships, things that happen outside of school, so it's not just, it's more than just the football, you know, it's more than just, just here. So when we talk about that individual player development, it's got to be very holistic, which is why working with different heads of departments, whether it's medical, psychology, you know, sports science and so on, I think, I think that's key. Yeah, it really is. And I think it's now good to see that the, the norm is becoming this individualised approach and, and different ways that um, get spun on it. I know you've got to go soon, Manisha, so I'm going to ask you one more question and then, and then we'll wrap up. I'm sure there could be a part two to this as well. Um, there's a lot of talk around development and winning, especially within the games programme, about winning games. And it, there's always, there's always um, an argument to say that even within development, you need to create that winning mentality and, and to be able to win games. And I even look at the Euros at the minute and you look at countries like Italy, for example, who my wife comes from, so I know a lot about them now. Um, and it's, it's from early on, they're very competitive. They want to win games and, and you can see that in them. And, and maybe that's something from the development. What's your thought process on that in terms of 
the, the games program and about getting the most for the individual, not sacrificing the individual outcomes, but then still trying to get some winning mentality at some point in the pyramid to prepare them for later on. So I think what you said there was, was actually the key part, which is understanding where they are. So we talk about winning mentality. Look, we all want to win. You know, you want to win football matches. But I think what's important is about um, teaching competitiveness. You know, it's, you, you want to develop um, players to be competitive, um, a confident, uh, be able to, we talk about uh, resilience, but that, that we can also relate that to competing, can't we? That, you know, being put in different situations. So are they in, uh, you know, when we play like some of the Premier League tournaments and they're in, you know, that, that has a, uh, an outcome. And the outcome is, is if we don't win the games, you get knocked out to when you're back in your own environment um, where that, that isn't necessarily the outcome, but then it is when you get to retain release age groups because there's an outcome there. So I think the most important thing when we talk about this winning mentality, yes, it is about winning a football match, we know, but actually we've got to look beyond that, which is also about competing. It's also about um, putting them in situations to allow them to, to be able to withstand adversities and, and, and challenges and, and be adaptable because they are going to be put in different situations. They go on tour, you know, that's competitive. You get, again, that, that there's a knockout um, uh, aspect to that. They go to the other tournaments, there's a knockout. You know, you've got retained release. You've got, there's so many, I think, contributing factors um, and areas that link to winning. I think, uh, Putting them in situations, like I said, to, to compete uh, will allow them to withstand adversity and, and, and teach them to be adaptable because ultimately that's what we want. We want adaptable learners. We want learners who are going to be uh, resilient to be able to, to manage and cope and have various mechanisms in their toolbox to, to, to overcome, to help them overcome challenge. Yeah, totally agree, Manisha. Um, we had a whole section on on your ambassador work within, um, I think, the minorities, which you touched upon at the start. So I think we'll part that for a part two because we spoke so much about the philosophy and coaching. But I must say, you know, the list is exhaustive in a positive way when you when you see all your um, achievements you've had in that area and, and try and enforce change. And you're an MBA, you've got an MBA, so massive congratulations on that. Um, Thank you so much for your time today, Manisha. Um, it's been great to chat to you and we'll definitely schedule a part B to, and a part two to, to, to go for a few things. No, thanks. It was great. Yeah, really good conversation. Thank you very much, Manisha. And just before we go for listeners, I must refer back to our sponsors, RIPT. Um, RIPT can help you simplify the creation and delivery of training programs, making it easier to provide your everyday clients or your athletes and teams needs at a fingertip with their training app. Training load, well-being, and nutrition monitoring is all part of the picture, so it creates an overall uh, profile. To find out more, again, please head over to uh, www.ripped.app and use the code locker room to get your two months free trial. Thank you very much for Cormac coming on board with us. And again, thank you to Manisha, a very good insight around coaching and development. I'm sure listeners are going to get a lot from it. Thanks, Manisha. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks. All right, bye.